to admit I was slightly distracted because I was trying to come up with a cool band name <laughs> for y'all. I, I, I didn't come up with anything, but I wanted to have something creative and funny to say by the time I got up here, and I, and I failed in that task. Uh, it's actually one of, like, there's a group of friends uh, that I have that that is, like, we have an exclusive group chat that's only for band names. Like, you hear something, and then you just send it in that group, and you're like, that's a band name. And so we have this long-running list, and so it's something I pride myself in, but I, I failed myself uh, this evening. Now, for, for the past several weeks, we've been in a series where we have been looking at the character of God. Which are these characteristics or these attributes that God says about himself in Exodus chapter 34. And this has been a really important passage for us because it begins to answer the question, what is God like? What is God like? And, and how does he relate to me? That when I come to God, how is he going to act towards me? And our understanding of who God is has a massive, massive impact on our lives because it shapes the way that we view ourselves and it shapes the way that we view the people around us that we see every day. Now, so far we've talked about four character attributes of God. The first word that God uses to describe himself in Exodus chapter 34 verse 6 is that he is compassionate, that he is compassionate. And we saw that compassion is an emotion, but it is also an action. The, the King James Version translate this, translates this not as compassion, but as long-suffering. And that's a very helpful way for us to conceptualize this, that God suffers with us. And the compassion that he feels with us is paired with the action of forgiveness and rescue. So God's compassion is always paired with this action where he brings about forgiveness and rescue for his People, looking back, we saw that God's compassion is this heartfelt response to the pain and suffering of his people. Now, the second word that God uses to describe himself was that he is gracious. God is compassionate, but he is also gracious. And we saw that God is gracious towards us, not because of ourselves, but in spite of ourselves. God is gracious towards us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. Meaning that God continues to pursue us and he continues to say yes to us, not because what we have done or not done, but because it is a part of his character, this unmerited favor that he shows us. Then we talked about the fact that God is slow to anger, or to say it another way, that God is patient with us. We saw that in Christ, our lives tell a story of divine patience. God was patient with us. Before we ever said yes to him, before we were following our own desires, before we were doing whatever we wanted and scarcely giving him a thought, even if we thought of him at all, not only was he patient with us, but he is patient with us right now because daily we find need of his forgiveness. And God will be patient with us tomorrow and the next day and the next day until we come to the end of our lives when Jesus Christ finally finishes the good work that he's begun in us. And last week, 
we talked about how God is abounding in loyal love. That he is abounding in loyal love. And loyal love describes the kind of love that's a commitment and it's a choice and it's a desire all wrapped up in one. And that is to say that God's loyal love is this concrete action-taking love. God's greatest demonstration of loyal love was the sacrifice of his son Jesus for the redemption of all of humanity. And so this week, we're going to explore the last of these five character attributes of God. And we're going to look at what it means when we say that God is faithful. When we say that God is faithful, what does that mean? Now, for probably the last 10 years, I have been climbing, not in reputation, not in popularity, none of those things, but I like to climb rocks, which is a fairly useless hobby, by the way. It's just like, for the sake of saying you did it, you want to go up in the hardest way you can possibly go up something that's not meant to go up, right? But for the last 10 years of my life, it is a hobby that I have loved, and I've dabbled in all of these sorts of styles of climbing and all of these different things. And now I don't climb all that much, but I still like to call myself a climber. And here's what I've learned. Climbing requires faith. Not the like, kind of like do the whole deal and then hope that you don't die when you leave the ground, but it requires faith in the fact that the gear will hold me. It requires faith in my own ability to perform under pressure and stress and fear. It requires faith that my partner won't drop me and actually let me die. And if I didn't have faith in the gear or I didn't have faith in my friend who was the person on the other end of the rope, then I would never leave the ground. I would never go climbing. Now, ever since I was a kid, I liked the idea of climbing. My parents were both climbers. I grew up reading all of these climbing books in my home, and I, I loved it. I was fascinated with it. I remember reading all of these books about climbing Everest and thinking it was just the greatest thing that I, felt, I thought a human being could do, was to go up just in the hardest way they could possibly go up. There was so much beauty in it for me. It seemed fun, but when I would actually go climbing as a kid, I was very much controlled by my fear. I was so scared. Despite the fact that I thought it would be fun, I was terrified of it. And as a result, I would go climbing, but I wouldn't go climbing. I would go climbing, but I would never actually leave the ground because I was too terrified to act because I thought I was going to die. And I had such a fear of falling and a lack of faith in the gear to catch me that I was stuck, wishing that I was going upwards, but never actually leaving the ground, which was objectively very silly because the gear is rated to thousands of pounds and it was my parents who were the ones who were on the other end of the rope who promised me that they would catch me if I fell. But I just didn't trust it. So I stayed right where I was with both feet firmly planted on the ground, wishing that I could go upwards. And it took me a long time to begin to actually have faith in the fact that I wasn't going to die the moment both feet left the ground. It took years and years and years for me to get to that point. And at that point, it freed me up to actually enjoy what is a really fun hobby. It's a really fun sport to participate in. Now, years ago, I took a, a climbing trip all over the kind of the Western United States. 
uh, kind of the mountain west, really. So I, we went climbing in, we started in New Mexico, then we went up to Utah, then we went to Colorado, then we went to Wyoming, and we had the best trip ever. We were just camping out of our truck and just climbing at every spot we thought seemed cool to go climbing. And we'd been having this awesome day, and we're at this spot called El Rito in New Mexico. It's in the middle of nowhere. And El Rito is only known for its climbing. So we're having this wonderful day. And we had some friends come meet up with us, and we've just had this, it's just been so much fun. And so the, towards the end of the day, I decided that I wanted to try hard one last time. I wanted to try a route, a hard route to finish the day. It was named Cobbles and Robbers. It's the, I, I will, won't forget it until the day that I die. It's Cobbles and Robbers, and I could literally walk you from the parking area like right to that spot because of an experience that I had there. I got to the top, and, and I began to get really, really tired, and I grabbed the last hold before I got to the anchors up at the top, before I could come down, and I totally blew it. And I just fell off, and I took about a 40-foot fall all the way down, like a real screamer of a fall where you have enough time in the air to continue to think about the fact that you're not done falling. That's the sort of fall that I took in that moment. And I remember I looked, I looked around, I was like, am I dead? Like, am I okay? Like, I don't know what just happened. And I was just dangling on to the end of the rope. And I was able to go for it like that without fear because I had faith in the fact that the gear would hold me and that my friend who was at the other end of the rope would catch me in case I fell. But it didn't start out taking like big falls. In climbing, they're called whippers, and that's just a fun vocab term for you guys. I didn't start taking these massive whippers, but I started by initially going up and I just sat on the gear because I wanted to know that, that I could trust it that, it, that it was going to hold me up. And then I went up and I intentionally fell a very short distance in a controlled way where I knew it was going to happen. Because then I saw, okay, so I know the gear will hold me, and then I fell and the gear will still hold me. And so what I then did is I went up and I took a fall that I wasn't anticipating taking. And over time and through repetition, I began to trust in the activity that I wasn't going to get hurt, that I wasn't going to die, that I wasn't going to hit the ground in those moments. And so by the time that I was at this moment in time in El Rito in New Mexico, I could act without fear. I could act without thinking because I had full faith that the gear was going to catch me, that I was going to be okay on the other end of it. Ultimately, that is faith. It's placing our trust in something. But what about faith as it pertains to God. What, what does that mean for me to put my faith in God? Well, we oftentimes have more faith in ourselves than we do in God. And in doing so, we fail to recognize God's character, that he is far more faithful, that he is far more stable, he is more able to be counted on than my own abilities. Yet, I find difficulty in taking that step out and faith in my relationship with God. And here is what I realized. We know ourselves more than we know God. We know ourselves more than we know God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe. 
We don't have the background knowledge and experience that informs our decision on whether to trust, whether to place our faith in him. We're these half-hearted creatures fooling around with God, hoping that he is who he says he is. But we oftentimes don't fully believe in his faithfulness, so we try to add to it with all of this other stuff. We so often say, I will trust God if he answers my prayers the way that I feel like he should. I'll trust God if he comes through for me in this one situation. We treat him like a genie in a bottle where we rub the lamp and then magically he does what we want him to do. I'll trust God if I know that this climbing gear will hold me. I'll trust God for these very specific things in my life, but not for those others. Because those I want to do on my own because I trust in my own ability to do and to make and to create and to fix things in my life. And what God wants us to see when we open the scriptures is that he is faithful, that he is worthy of our faith in him. And he has quite the resume to prove it. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here can be translated as faithfulness or even truth. So we could translate this verse by saying that God is abounding in truth, which is a a truthful statement. That is true about God for sure. However, if we were to translate it in that way, it doesn't quite fully communicate the personal and relational nature of God, which is what God is communicating to Moses in this moment. In this context, God is telling Moses that he is faithful and that he is trustworthy. Now, faithful isn't necessarily an emotional word like some of these other attributes that we've studied so far, but it does have this connotation of covenant and relationship meaning that I can't be faith, that I'm, I'm faithful to another person, right? I can't just be faithful to nothing. There, there's something else that's involved in this process. I'm faithful to Johnny and our friendship together. Does that make sense? There's relationship inherently tied up in this word. Now, let's think about the context of this verse again very briefly, and I know we've talked about it a lot, but in Exodus chapter 32, Israel has failed as God's covenant partners. They've turned away from God. They've made an idol. And this is literally right after they agree to the terms of the covenant relationship with God. Yet despite all of this, in this moment, God is telling Moses that he is faithful. Despite the people of Israel's unfaithfulness, God is faithful specifically to Moses and to the nation of Israel. So what does that mean for us in our thinking about God? Well, it demonstrates for us that even when people fail to remain faithful to God's covenants, God is faithful to his people. That even when we fail as God's covenant partners, he remains faithful to us. In other words, even when we screw up, even when we turn and we walk away from God, God does not turn away from us. 
He's faithful to fulfill his promises. God is faithful and he's trustworthy and he is reliable. Which means that when God says he's going to do something, he does it. That when God said that by the blood of Jesus, our salvation has been paid for, it has been paid for. There are no doubts, there are no questions. It has been taken care of because God is faithful. And that's simple enough for us to understand. It's really not a difficult concept, faithfulness. We understand that because we see it in our human relationships all the time. We experience people who are faithful to us in friendships and in relationships. And we've also all carried the hurts and the wounds of people who have been unfaithful to us in our relationships and our friendships and in our families and all of these different places. But this also has like an implication for us. God being faithful has an implication It means that we have a part to play when we begin to understand the faithfulness of God. He then calls us to respond to his faithfulness with our own act of faith. It's uh, it's a lot like, have you guys ever seen the chair demonstration? Has anybody ever done this with you guys? Okay, cool. So some of you guys have definitely seen this. There is a reciprocal relationship between faith and faithfulness. Meaning, when we look at the chair, a chair is faithful. It's faithful to be sat upon. It's faithful to hold us up off of the ground. But it's one thing to have faith that the chair will hold us up. But it's an entirely different thing for us to then act on that faith and actually sit in the chair. To believe that the chair will hold us up and eventually sit down on top of it. That is the act of faith. It's one thing to think about this in the abstract and say that I believe that that chair is not going to break when I sit down on it. But it becomes concrete reality when we then place our faith in it and we sit down on the chair for our very selves. When someone says to you, come on in and have a seat, do you go in and do you just like test out the chair first? That like when you've gone into your job interview and you shake the guy's hand, he's like, please have a seat. And you go over and you're like, is it a trick? No, we sit down. We just immediately sit down in the chair because we have this certain amount of trust. We have this certain amount of background knowledge and experience to tell us that the chair is safe, that the chair will hold me up. We've seen chairs hold people up our entire lives. And how many chairs have we sat in? So when we see a chair, we don't even think about it. We act upon it and we just sit down. That's the reciprocal relationship between faith and faithfulness. They go hand in hand. The point I'm trying to get across is that biblical trust is not blind trust. Biblical trust is not blind trust. If you guys don't hear me say anything else tonight, I want you to hear me say that. Then when we say that we trust God, it is not a blind trust, but we call upon all of our experience, all of the things that we know to be true. So in that moment, we trust that God will be faithful here and now. Now, the perfect example of this is in the life of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham that he is going to have a son. 
and that all nations will be blessed through him. But Abraham and Sarah, they haven't been able to have children. It tells us that that Sarah's womb was barren. But Abraham and Sarah trust God. They trust God. He, He considers God faithful to open a way forward even when he can't begin to think of how that would possibly work. And that story is fraught with both Abraham and Sarah being trusting of God's promises and also of them very much not being faithful to what God, believing that God will do what he said he was going to do. But no matter that it seemed like Sarah was past childbearing age, the scripture tells us that Abraham trusted God. Genesis 15 verses five and six, and he, God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring Now, here's the key for us in verse 6. And he, being Abraham, believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, the same word that's used in Exodus 34 by God to talk about his own faithfulness is the, the same word that's being used here to talk about Abraham's belief. Belief, faith, trust, all of those things are wrapped up into the same word. So we could translate this and say that Abraham had faith in God and God counted it to him as righteousness. It's really, really cool to see what's happening here. We have this example of God being faithful, but then we have an example of God's covenant partner in Abraham then believing God and God counting it to him as righteousness. Now, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, reflects on the life of Abraham, and he uses it as an example of what it looks like to have faith in God and how people become part of Abraham's family, united through faith in God. Romans 4, verse 18 says this, in hope he, Abraham, believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is a pretty good definition of faith. Romans 4, 21, if you guys want to write it down, that's, your, that's kind of like the banner definition of what faith means. That we place our faith in God, and that means that we are fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised to do in our lives. Now, followers of Jesus... Uh, today are sometimes criticized for choosing faith without any evidence. That it's like this empty sort of belief because they can't prove anything. 
But biblical faith is not blind trust. In the Bible, faithful people are constantly looking back on examples of God's faithfulness in the past, and that becomes the basis for their present trust. That becomes the basis for their present trust because they look back and they say, God was faithful then, and he was faithful then, and he was faithful then, and that means he is going to be faithful right now. So for us as followers of God today, how does this apply to us? When we look back at the example of God's faithfulness in the person of Jesus as the proof that God is worthy of our faith. When we look at Jesus, we see that God is faithful to bring about redemption for all of humankind. And that allows us to place our faith in him. Now, despite facing significant obstacles to faith, people all throughout the New Testament demonstrate this incredible faith in the person of Jesus. If you guys go to to Matthew chapter 8, for example, we read that when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, asking him for something. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who had followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But verse 13, and the centurion, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, what's so surprising about this whole interaction is that the centurion is a person of higher status in society than Jesus was. He's a non-Israelite of high status within Roman culture. And he's coming to a person of, of low status and the person of Jesus, a person who is subject to him, that he could command to do this or to pay the tax, and he would have to do it. Yet, he views Jesus as worthy of his faith, which is a really remarkable thing. The power dynamic, the insider-outsider dynamic don't matter in this story. The centurion has faith that Jesus can heal his servant, that he doesn't even need to come to his home to do it, that he just has to say the word and it will be done. And this story shows us that Jesus heals the servant because of the centurion's display of faith and trust in him. Now, Tim Mackey over at the Bible Project points out that the writers of the New Testament carry forward an important theme from the Old Testament. A central theme of the Old Testament is people trusting in God despite all of the odds. We just looked at the story of Abraham. Despite all the odds, these are people who are trusting that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. 
And the New Testament is centered on the theme of people trusting Jesus, who is God become human. Throughout the Bible, we see that God has proven himself trustworthy through acts of faithfulness over and over and over again, all throughout time, specifically in the fulfillment of his covenant partners to Abraham and to David in the person of Jesus. And we now are invited to trust in Jesus, to place our faith in Jesus, just like the centurion did, despite any obstacles that might come up for us in placing our faith in him. Now, here is the thing. Any relationship involves trust. Any relationship involves trust, whether that is a person-to-person relationship that we have, or we're talking about a relationship with the Creator God. And that trust should never be blind. That trust should never be blind. It should be based on the evidence of proven faithfulness. Throughout the story of the Bible, humans are repeatedly unfaithful, yet God remains faithful to people. The pattern of God's faithfulness that's found in Scripture is something that we then can cling to. That when we are asking the question, can I trust that God is going to come through for me in this moment, we cling to the fact that he has been faithful for thousands of years to his people. It is evident that God is faithful to his people. As we see in the New Testament, even when we struggle to trust. Jesus is still trustworthy, and he approaches us with compassion. Jesus is still faithful, and he approaches us in compassion when we have all of the doubt in the world. So my question for you is this, where are you struggling to trust God? Where are you struggling to trust God? Is it for your salvation? Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus before. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing about him. Are you struggling with doubt? All of these questions about how God could be who he says he is? Maybe you're struggling to trust God in a specific relationship or or with your finances or your family or school or a habitual sin that you just can't seem to kick. All that we have to do is simply turn to him and say yes to him because he has already said yes to us. Our faith finds its expression through the act of surrender. Through the act of surrender. It is saying, God, what you want for me, I want for me. God, how you call me to live my life, I want that for me. I surrender all that I know of myself to all that I know of you. I trust that you are faithful to save me, to redeem me, to restore me, to bring about my freedom, to provide for me, and to protect me until the very end. When we do that, we are inviting the Holy Spirit in and allowing him to change us from the inside out on a moment-by-moment basis. Surrender is not a one-time thing, but is something that we are doing over and over and over again. It becomes how we live our life, fully surrendered to what God wants to do. 
Because the reality is I'm tempted to not trust God every day of my life. Let me be the first person to say it. I am tempted every day to not trust God. And the only way that I'm able to place my faith and my trust in Jesus is to invite the Holy Spirit in to change my desires on a moment-by-moment basis. Here is the one thing that I can promise you. When we do that, when we surrender our life to God, God is faithful. God is faithful. He is faithful in spite of your doubts. He is not afraid of them at all. He has proven himself faithful to bring about your salvation in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago. He is faithful to provide for you financially. He is faithful to lead you and to guide you in your relationships and in school. He is faithful to bring you freedom from sin and addiction that holds us in bondage in our life. And how do I know that God is faithful? Well, the first place I look is I look back at the biblical narrative. I see that God was faithful to Abraham. I see that God was faithful to the nation of Israel, that he was faithful to David, that he was faithful in all of these ways, even when they didn't reciprocate his faithfulness. I look to the story of Jesus who represents God's faithfulness to all humanity, and that gives me hope. But I don't only look to the scriptures, I look to the story of my own life, and I see the ways that God has been faithful to me in the past. That when I've been at my absolute wit's end and I don't know what to do and I surrender myself to him all of the times that he has come through. And when I look at those things, all of the things that I've seen, all of the things that I have experienced teaches me to trust God for the things that I cannot see. All of the things that I have seen teach me to trust God with the things that I, have, that I cannot see. It is not blind trust. It is God who has proven faithful over and over and over again throughout history and our own lives. Now, here is the coolest part, or at least the coolest part for me. The natural byproduct of surrender is peace. When we surrender ourselves to God, we have a peace that is not of this world, that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds, as Paul says in Philippians. I live at peace because now the pressure is off. The pressure is off to do things, to fix things, to create things, to solve every problem in my life because I trust that God is going to be faithful in my life. I'm no longer worried about my doubt. I trust that God is big enough for that. I'm no longer worried about uh, my salvation because I know that God has already done the finished work. I'm not worried about money or family or school or any of those things or that habitual sin that I just can't manage to kick because it's not on me to resolve all of those things. It's not about me. It's about a God who is faithful to bring about freedom in all of those areas in our life. And so I live a life of freedom. And I don't do it perfectly. I still worry. I get anxious. I have hard things come up that I want to try to fix on my own. But when I then turn my gaze back to God, when I surrender myself 
to him, trusting that he is ultimately in control of my life. And then I see that he is working to bring about his will in all of these areas and all of these problems that I can't manage to fix myself. And that gives me an abiding peace that no matter the circumstances, I have faith that God is in control and he will be faithful to me. If we just let God have all of our lives, we come to realize that he can do far more with our life than we possibly can on our own. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are faithful. And God, we thank you that you don't call us to to trust you blindly, although it may seem like it at times. But God, we thank you that you have proven yourself faithful over and over and over again. All throughout the scriptures are stories of your faithfulness, God, and we reflect on our own lives, and we see that you are still faithful to us today. So God, right now, here in this place, we surrender ourselves to you again, trusting that you are faithful to bring us through whatever the circumstance, that you are faithful to bring us into freedom from all of the things that hold us in bondage. And so God, we respond in worship. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.